0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When I was starting to write this sermon, I remembered something I saw in the news about a decade or so ago. With the power of the internet at my fingertips, I typed into the search engine the following commands. Injured man on street, no one help and I thought to myself, surely the video I remembered would flash onto the screen immediately and be the first result. I was shocked to find that I had to search through several videos before I found the one I remembered. But the content that I was sifting through was all the same. Someone who was in dire need of aid, usually in a large metropolitan area, is left alone on the sidewalk or in the middle of a street, and no one stops. Or at least, no one stops for a while, perhaps even an hour. One video I watched was from 2019, and it was of a man mugged in the Bronx. And the news commentators even commented that not only were cars passing by the man lying in the street, but that a city bus drove past him missing his head by what appeared to be inches in his book the tipping point malcolm gladwell writes about a problem called the bystander problem and it works like this let's say that someone is having a medical emergency or is being attacked in a public place the number of people who are witnesses to the event determine the amount of help that the person will typically receive. But here's what the discouraging facts of the experiment have proved. The fewer number of people present translate into better care that is given. Scientists have run experiments about this and conclude that if one person witnesses an emergency that is happening, 85% of the time, they will render aid. And call for help however if there are four pres- four people present during the incident, the number drastically falls to being given help only about 13% of the time and the reason the hypothesis says is that because there are other people around the injured person is no longer seen as my problem but is seen as their problem. Of all the parables that Jesus told that are recorded, this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, is probably the one that is perhaps the most timeless. Jesus talks about a scenario that is still true to life for all of us. Most of us have been one of the characters in this story, and if you have not yet been, then more than likely at some point you will be. And the setup for this story is a question that the lawyer asks Jesus, which we also ask with some frequency. Who is my neighbor? Well, to answer that question, we need to start with an even more basic question than who is my neighbor, and instead ask, what are human beings for? Many businesses... Governments, nonprofits, and even sadly, some people associated with various churches see people, see humans, as something to exploit. They are people from whom we can get more money, even if that means doing it through dishonest methods, or through products that are faulty, or through workmanship which is rendered to ensure that whatever it is fails. Governments, oftentimes, talk about helping citizens that are in their jurisdiction, but instead they burden people with bureaucratic red tape and mountains of paperwork, and the politicians somehow amass more wealth because of lobbyists and bribes. How many of us have called upon a plumber or an electrician or an automobile mechanic to fix a problem with whatever is not working right only to have to make repeated calls and repeated trips, each with a new service charge because they forgot some vital step along the way. Well, yes, we trade and perform acts of commerce. We have to in order to purchase food and shelter and clothing. Yes, we do rely on government and many times when we need them They are there to assist us. And of course, there are the workmen and the craftsmen who see their occupation as a vocation and who do the very best job they can because they understand that people give the best reviews by word of mouth. And they understand that people are there to serve and to be treated fairly and equally. And people above all are to be cared for and treated with dignity and respect because they are also made in the image of God. So the answer to the lawyer's question then seems to be rather simple. My neighbor is everyone because all people, all people are created in the image of God. But something we forget when we read this story, is the implication that Jesus is drawing on all the characters. Jesus is presenting this story in a scandalous manner, in a way that for the audience of his days would have shocked the first hearers. So let's start with the priest. If we can, we can be maybe a little bit overly generous with him because we might need to give the priest a pass He might have an excuse, right? Perhaps he was headed to someone's house to go pray for them. Maybe he was on his way to an important meeting, you know, some sort of rabbinical or for us, diocesan meeting somewhere. Maybe he was going to the temple and to touch that bleeding man on the side of the road would have rendered him ritually unclean and he couldn't perform his duties there. After all, priests are busy people and we're pretty important, right? Surely, doing more for the masses is better than tending to one individual person. But Jesus also says, along came a Levite. Now, a Levite is someone who assists the priests in the temple. If you want to draw a parallel, they would be like deacons in the church, or even better yet, kind of like the lay Eucharistic ministers and the lectors and the crucifers and the acolytes and everyone up here with me. Well, he too's crossing the road and he crosses the street to avoid the man. And we can say, well, maybe they need an excuse too, don't you think? I mean, after all, if it's a deacon, The widows and the orphans might already be at the church waiting on him to distribute food. Or it could be that it's only one hour until this liturgy begins and the altar cover is the wrong color. We might have other duties. But you see, the priest and the Levite both assume an attitude that is once again prominent today. And we hear it. We hear it all over the place. We hear it from our children and from our friends and even from our politicians when they say, that's not my problem. And it's become the mantra, unfortunately, of also good, upstanding Christians as well. It's one of the effects we see throughout history when injustices are examined and given the scrutiny they deserve. For example, the subjugation of the Native Americans onto reservations with forced marches in harsh conditions only to be given the worst land possible on this continent. But many Christians of that age and many Christians of this age still repeat the phrase that's not my problem. Perhaps because... They don't see a neighbor in need of help, but rather a savage to conquer. But the real rub, the real scandal of this parable is not the priest and the Levite refusing to help the beaten men. The scandal is the one who does stop, the Samaritan, someone who would have been considered less than by the Jews someone who is prox- probably mixed race, someone who would be the most unlikely person to stop because the perception of them is that they are the other. So let's tell the story this way and let's set it in 1950s rural Alabama. A white man is beaten, robbed, and left on the side of a busy city street. A Baptist minister walks by, but he's too busy saving souls. An Episcopal priest sees the man, but he's running late for evening prayer. But in small town, county seat, rural Alabama, a black man stops on the side of the road and dresses the man's wounds and puts his bleeding body in his... Old beat-up car and drives him to the doctor's office and tells him to give him the bill, even though this white man is probably a member of the Ku Klux Klan. That's the scandal of the Good Samaritan. You see, the answer to the question is of who is my neighbor? It's not the person who lives next to you or the person whom you work with or someone you know and admire. Your neighbor is the very person who hates you, who despises you, who thinks you're inferior. But before we rest on our laurels, let us also remember that our neighbors are the people we hate. The people we despise. The people whom we think are inferior to our own selves. And it's the lesson that we all need to learn. Perhaps right now the greatest example of this lesson is the events in the Ukraine. With literal neighbors, family members, grandparents in one country and great-grandchildren in another, fighting and slaughtering each other because... Neither at this point know who their neighbor is. And here in the United States, the political lines are drawn by those who are liberal and conservative, Democrat or Republican. And whatever you are, the other is your enemy. And the enemy is the other half of the United States. I want to end this sermon with a story, a true story, because they're the best kind. In 1943, the Nazi forces occupied Rome and barricaded Vatican City, painting a white line on the boundary, literally, between the church and the state. The Vatican had been giving asylum to refugees, Jews, escaped prisoners of war, even gypsies. They had to stop at one point because the Vatican was literally on the verge of being overrun and the safety and health of all within the walls could no longer be guaranteed. But a certain Irish priest, Hugh O'Flattery, a monsignor in the Roman church, he couldn't be stopped. He set up a network within Rome of priests, nuns, the butler to the British ambassador to Vatican City, even a few communists, and a Swiss count living in Rome to shelter and hide all the people whom the Nazis wanted. Over 4,000 POWs from Britain, the United States, Australia, and other nations were sheltered in apartments, farms, and convents. There were several assassination attempts by the Nazis on the Monsignor which only emboldened him more. One of his friends, who was also a priest, was captured, tortured, and executed by the Nazis, but he refused to disclose any of the hiding locations. By the time the Allies arrived in Rome, about a year later, there were 6,425 POWs hiding, many of them in private homes. Of the 9,000 Jews in Rome prior to the occupation, O'Flattery and his co-conspirators were able to hide over 5,000 of them, some of them in the Castel Gondolfo, some as members of the Palatine Guard. They placed about 1,500 Jews in the monasteries around Rome and the convents and the colleges, and over 3,700 in private homes, and a few of them just yards away, literally like across the street, from the Nazi headquarters. It was an incredible and astonishing effort. But Monsignor O'Flattery had his nemesis, Colonel Herbert Kapler. Kepler wanted O'Flattery captured and tortured and drew up plans to have him executed right in front of the Vatican as a sign that the Nazis and the Third Reich would not be stopped. But something strange happened. The Allied forces won a major victory and within the span of a week, Rome was no longer going to be held by the Germans. Now, Kepler had a serious problem. How was he going to protect his family, his wife and two children who were with him in Rome and get them to safety while the allies advanced on the city? The 1983 film, The Scarlet and the Black, tells the story in great detail with Gregory Peck as father of flattery and Christopher Plummer as Colonel Kepler. And a highly dramatic scene near the end of the film, as Kepler realizes that Rome is lost, he sends an assassin to kidnap Monsignor O'Flaherty and to bring him to the Colosseum in Rome. And this is part of the dialogue, which I think captures some of the essence of our gospel for today. Kepler says to the to the Irish priest, I've heard about you i've been talking to people i know all about you and the monsignor says what is it you want from me and kepler begins his request with what he knows of this priest he says they say that you cannot cross a beggar or a lame dog but you see in yourself some sort of obligation to look after everyone in trouble. You help British and American prisoners, Jews, Arabs, refugees, anyone. It's a part of your faith. Is that right? Well, I wouldn't deny it, O'Flattery replied that's why i became a priest the german colonel continues brotherly love and forgiveness that's the other half of what you believe true with gusto the monsignor nods his head defiantly and says true and then the german gets to the point of this meeting Well, I'm glad because I have three more for your mercy wagon. My wife and two kids. If the partisans get them, they will be killed. I want them out of Rome and I want them safe. That's what I want from you, priest. You're asking me to save your family. you really believe what you preach, you'll do it. With rising indignation, the priest retorts back, You expect me to help you after what you've done? You think you can demand forgiveness? You think it comes automatically because you want it? Pleading now, Kepler says, I'm not talking about myself. But the Irish priest, full of rage, stops him and yells back, You've turned this city into a concentration camp. You've tortured and butchered my friends. You've violated every principle of God and man. I can't believe after what you've done that you want mercy. And Kepler, now knowing that the answer he is about to receive will not be the one he wants. Pitifully, he says, I told you, for my family. But with an air of superiority, the angered priest digs in deeper. They're just a part of you, part of what you stand for. They've taken whatever they could get without a thought for the suffering all around them. And now you demand that they be saved? I'll see you in hell first. And with that, the priest turns and walks away and Kaplan, mostly under his breath, but eventually yelling at the cassock-clad cleric, says, you're no different than anybody else. All your talk." means nothing. Charity, mercy, forgiveness, it's all lies. Don't you talk to me about God and humanity. Now the scene changes in the movie, and we're brought up to a victory parade with the Allied troops and their tanks rolling and flanking the streets and soldiers marching to joyous music with the Italian crowds cheering. Eventually we're led to an interrogation room with Colonel Kepler being questioned by allied officers. And the question that they ask begin to confuse him when they start talking about this pipeline of people leaving Rome and it's a pipeline of Nazis, and in that pipeline is his wife and two children. He's told that they're in Switzerland now. And the allies want the information on how he managed to get them out. And he keeps saying, I doesn't know. I don't know. I do not know. And eventually we can see a change in his eyes. And he realizes that the priest, who he had actively sent snipers to kill, who had thwarted him in the game of cat and mouse, of whom he had kidnapped so he could beg mercy for his family, had indeed saved them. And like I said, this is a true story. And after the war, Colonel Kepler was sentenced to life imprisonment in Italy. His wife divorced him. And through all the intervening years, only one person came month after month after month to visit him in his prison cell. The Irish priest, Father O'Flattery, and during the ensuing years, they visited about literature and opera, philosophy, and the Christian faith. Colonel Kepler was eventually baptized by Monsignor Flattery in his prison cell in 1959. Jesus asked the lawyer... Which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. In the name of the Father